Let's pray. Praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honour and power and strength are yours, Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice to recognise that all of these aspects of might and glory are yours. And as we bring before you these signals of our own uh, power, such as it is, the money that we've uh, used, saved, borrowed, earned, whatever it may be, we ask that they may be signals not so much for you but to our own hearts of the ways in which all things are yours. And we ask that you would use all things, including us and these gifts, for your glory. Amen. Do please sit and please find uh, Acts chapter 8. The book of the Acts of the Apostles is full of high drama. They are the uh, adventures of the gospel, as it seems to take two steps forward, and then it looks as though it's going to have to take two steps back. Now, some of you were here when we looked at the uh, story in chapters 4 and 5. I wonder if you remember how, they, how chapter 4 ended. Tremendous grace and generosity as those early converts sell their goods and they make the proceeds available to all around them. But then, there is the story of the near destruction of this early generosity, as we hear in chapter 5 of the two people, Ananias and Sapphira, who hold back money that they'd promised. And the same kind of forward and back is going on tonight. And as so often... The way that the chapters divide, that doesn't really help us, because it separates two stories off that kind of belong together. Uh, You are probably here, many of you, for the story of chapter 7. And chapter 7 is in many ways the story of the failure of the Jewish people. Stephen, the first martyr, reads their story back to him, in return for which they stone him to death. But that story leads us straight into chapter 8. The inclusion of the hated Samaritan Gentiles. Do you you get that immediate picture? Because presumably you'll have sat in a sermon somewhere along the way and heard the story of the the good Samaritan and how much Samaritans were hated. So you get this story of the Jewish failure going straight into the story of the Samaritans and the prospering of the gospel there. And as so often there's persecution going on. The established order fights back as Saul, uh, he's there at the end of uh, chapter uh, 7, beginning of chapter 8, Saul starts this great uh, persecution of the believers, dragging off to prison the individuals uh, who are new Christians. And then, as so often, that persecution produces a scattering as they're scattered to the four winds. 
which just ensures that the word of God spreads further afield than Saul could ever prevent. And that's where tonight's story really opens. And it's really two stories. The first one is that God's gift is powerful. And the way that one story nestles in the other, I'm going to separate them for the purposes of of going through them. I'm really going to focus, to begin with, on the story of Peter and John. Or perhaps, I suppose it is, in one sense, the story even earlier of Philip. Philip is one of these deacons we heard about, as, as Mark preached a few weeks ago. He's appointed to wait on tables to sort out some of the finances of the church. Uh, But despite what he's appointed to do, this is where we discover in this chapter that Philip is out there preaching. He's clearly been part of this persecution. He's scattered. No Jew in their right mind uh, would go anywhere near uh, Samaria. And even from his name, although he's Greek-speaking, the implication is he was a Greek-speaking Jew. They wouldn't go near Samaria. So for him to have ended up in Samaria anyway indicates how desperate things probably were. And there he preaches Christ. And he sees a massive uh, impact. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. He reached crowds at a time. Miraculous signs were all around. There were exorcisms, there were healings. The impact of it, we can see, In verse 12, they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And what happened? They were baptized, both men and women. That's important because it would have been unusual for women to matter. So they were baptized, both men and women. That's what was happening in Samaria. But back at HQ in Jerusalem, there was a question. This wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, they, they knew about Jesus. They'd kind of got it that uh, Jesus, the fulfillment of the Jewish hopes for a Messiah, had come and great things uh, were going on and he was indeed the deliverer that they prayed and hoped for. But this is news from Samaria. And so they send in the biggest guns they've got. They send in Peter and John. And I, I wonder if Peter and John just showed up or whether there was a little note went by kind of Pony Express first to say, um, good to hear of all the things going on. We're sending Peter and John. Carol Crouch, one of our uh, wardens, has been Ofsteaded uh, this week in her school. Um, how many of you are teachers who have ever been Ofsteaded? A few. How many of you have had the inspectors come in for any other reason? Not, not as teachers, yes, Okay. So this is kind of off God. (laughs) Peter and John, uh, this is the heavy brigade, uh, are being sent from uh, Jerusalem uh, to Samaria. There's no sense uh, that anything was wrong. We don't know what they heard. For all we know, it was just a kind of recce trip to find out what was actually going on in Samaria. And on their arrival, what they find... uh, where is it? Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard the Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. How did they know that Samaria, the Samaritan new believers, the new people being, uh, who had been baptized, had not received the Holy Spirit? 
We do not know. It would be really useful if there was a footnote at this point, but there isn't, so we have no idea. What we do discover is that they had been baptized only into the name of the Lord Jesus, like, like into a kind of allegiance. You've, you've uh, changed sides. You've moved into the sphere of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although we are told that Philip preached the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So uh, perhaps already there were, there were two names that were being used a lot. God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit was kind of lagging behind a bit in the preaching of Philip. Anyway, uh, Peter and John placed hands on them. I know what that was like. And prayed that uh, these believers might receive the Holy Spirit, which happened according uh, to verse 18. But how did they know? We're not told. Uh, Very frustrating again, and another footnote would be quite useful at this point. But something that was obviously happening, because Simon, to whom we'll come later in our second story, saw that the Spirit was was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands. Now, what's going on in Samaria? Well, depending on what background you come from, you might give different answers to that. If you're from a a Catholic or a Pentecostal background, this kind of approach may all seem very normal. You get converted, and then sometime after you get converted, uh, something to do with the Holy Spirit happens to you. Uh, For Catholics, that's, uh, and perhaps for Orthodox, that's, more likely represented when a church official lays hands on you and prays for the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're from a more Pentecostal background, it's more likely a moment of further prayer, leading to what has been known in Pentecostal circles as baptism in the Holy Spirit. And if you're from a Catholic or Pentecostal uh, background, that story in Acts 8 will seem to you very normal, because it is this two-stage. They they seem to believe, not quite sure what they believe, but somehow they seem to believe enough anyway for Philip to baptize them, and then something else happens to do with the Holy Spirit. However, there's every reason to think it's not normal what's recorded here. There's no sign that Peter and John turn up because they expect anything inadequate, And it flies in the face of other stories that come very soon afterwards, uh, very soon after chapter 8 in in 9 and 10 and later, where a Gentile Roman uh, and and those in his household, they receive the Holy Spirit immediately upon believing. And that, in fact, through Acts, is the more normal pattern. So this doesn't seem normal. It doesn't seem usual. Could we think of any reason why it might happen this way Instead of the normal, well, yes, we can. And we have to go back to the shape of the story, where the story going. We go from chapter 7 through to chapter 8. We have the failure of the Jews and the prospering of the gospel among the Samaritans. Now, imagine what's going to happen under those circumstances if Peter and John do not off-God them. What you're going to get is you're going to get the most hated uh, community on the planet according to the Jews, uh, uh, recognizing something about Jesus Christ and having an independent source and witness, Philip, so as to oppose what's coming out of Jerusalem, which of course they would do because they knew how much they were hated and they hated the Jews back. 
You know the problems in the church of Corinth, which begin Paul's letter to Corinth. I'm for Paul. I'm for Apollos. Well, imagine if at the beginning of things, they'd started out saying, I am for Peter. I am for Philip. The church of God would be split down the middle, inheriting all the ancient rivalries of the Jews and the Samaritans. The likelihood is going to be complete disaster. So what might God do to prevent that? How about withholding his spirit? Until the two most high-profile servants of Jesus that there were, Peter and John, those who'd gone to the tomb at the very beginning, come from Jerusalem to see what's going on, and then bring the church visibly together at their hands as they pray. They've preached to and prayed for Jews. Now let them preach to and pray for Samaritans. And that way, the mammoth challenge will be written into the life of the church from the beginning, that the barriers really have come down. God will bring into his kingdom all the peoples of the earth, even those who have been at each other's throats for generations. That's what most people reckon is going on in this story. The Samaritans must not be allowed to have a separate beginning point. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 says to Jesus, Ah, now, I'm glad you're here, because um, when it comes to worship, you say that worship should be offered in Jerusalem. We say it's supposed to be on this mountain. The church can't be kicked off with one group of people saying, We say it's, uh, worship is in Jerusalem, uh, and those others over there, they say it begins with those kicked out of Jerusalem. It all has to begin with Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ, the kingdom of his Father, and the gift of his Spirit. And so God delays till everything can catch up together, and the authorized preaching of the good news of Jesus can be seen to stem from only the one source, the apostles commissioned by Jesus himself. That achieves two things. Firstly, the the Samaritans, the Samaritans, are incorporated. And secondly, the church of God is kept one and apostolic by the Holy Spirit. I said earlier, thinking of of chapters 4 and 5, that just as the the generosity of chapter 4 crunches into the greed of chapter 5, so we get the gift of God through his Spirit crunching in chapter 8 into the Uh, greed, again, of of an individual who wants power. So if it's true that God's gift is powerful, then the second story you could say is bribing God is pathetic. Simon is a sorcerer, and a very powerful one. According to verse 9, he practiced in the city but amazed all the people of Samaria. They'd come from far and wide, in other words. Not not, not a huge region. Um, uh, Most... A, a missionary friend of mine says, it's amazing how God has ordered the world so that most places that missionaries go to always end up being the size of Wales. Um, but uh, Samaria is actually even smaller uh, than Wales. It's kind of like mid-Wales. Um, uh, but anyway, it, it, was a, it, was, it was a region, and all the people of the region, uh, according to verse 9, had been amazed by what Simon who has Uh, was doing. He boasted he was great, and it seems that in Samaria, with this kind of 
weird mix of Jewish religion and um, sort of inherited Babylonian stuff they'd come back from the exile with. They were into uh, a bit of the real God, but also a lot into superstition and magic. And they thought that there would be this divine power known as the great power, I guess a kind of shadow side Messiah in some way, uh, who was going to come. That's who they thought this Simon was. He boasted of himself as someone great. But even he is impressed that uh, uh, Philip and Peter and John in due course can do better than he can. He is himself baptized. Every now and then, as an Anglican, I'm embarrassed when uh, I'm confronted with the reality that uh, baptism of infants doesn't always go brilliantly. It doesn't always lead to adult faith. It doesn't always lead to parents raising their children in the faith. So it's uh, worth recognizing the same is true for any kind of baptism. Baptism can go wrong whether you're baptizing infants or adults. Claims about belief sometimes do and they sometimes don't stack up. They sometimes do and don't lead to a life in Christ. For Simon, it was all about getting to the power. On the day of Pentecost, Peter had stood up and promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there in verse 20, we get again the gift of God. How can you buy that with money? It's a gift. You can't buy it. And it's of God. So it doesn't belong to anyone who's concerned to boast of themselves. There's only three words there, gift of God, and Simon manages to get two of them spectacularly wrong. Importantly, wickedly wrong. He's even so in awe of the power that he assumes is with the apostles, he thinks it belongs to them, that he asks them to pray for him. He can't even manage repenting on his own. Yet how surprising is it really that he should get it wrong in, this, in his or in any other generation? Uh, what can you get for 150,000 quid these days? Well, you can get three Pakistani cricketers. What can you get for 183,000 pounds today? Well, depending on whether the allegations are true, you can, are true, you can or cannot get a manager's account in Monaco. Uh, a football manager's account. Cash in brown envelopes was handed over to MPs so that they would ask the right questions. Money and power have always belonged together, and let's not even go near Berlusconi. <laughs> the French Revolution was in large measure down to popular outrage about the behavior of those who were called rentiers, those who had the right to levy local taxes, and they bought that right and then they could do whatever they liked with the local taxes, as long as they paid those from whom they bought it. The Arab Spring has been fueled by popular uh, outrage about corruption throughout the system of the countries where it's happened. And Levi is detested in the Gospel of Matthew because his right to be a tax collector was something he'd have bought, and he could invent his own fiddled arrangements so long as he paid the Romans. So this story is not only about Simon. Simon is the norm. By his Holy Spirit, God is kind of slapping the face of the world's authorities and saying, power, I'll show you power, and you can't have it, not in the way you're used to having it. Caesar, high priests, magicians, forget it. This power is a gift, my gift, and receiving it depends on believing the good news of Jesus Christ 
trusting in his kingdom, recognizing I'm at work in a new group of people, beginning with the apostles in Jerusalem, so you can't have it. It's not for having by money. You can pray for it, you can trust Jesus for it, but that's the only way you'll get there. Well, we're close to the end, and how are we going to summarize that story? It seems to me the worst thing we could say is, oh, yes. Yes, corruption's very bad. Simon was very bad. I'm glad I'm not like Simon. I'm glad that I'm a believer in Jesus, and I have no interest in the vulgarity of the power and the power games going on in this story. It's true that verses 14 to 17 probably aren't normal. It's probably not normally a two-stage arrival of the Holy Spirit. It's not the way it's meant to be. Normal is meant to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all acting together. And that may mean, may mean, that verse 6 isn't normal either. Miraculous healings and exorcisms going on right, left, and center all provoke belief in Jesus, and they lead to the visit from Peter and John. Without that drama, would Peter and John have come? We can't know, but maybe not. I wrote this sermon on my computer, And I know I use a tiny proportion of the memory in my computer. Probably a fraction of its power, too. And I have this unpleasant feeling that the same is true of my relationship with God's Holy Spirit. So I hope this story doesn't make any of us say, all this power stuff, it's not very English, not very now. Even could be hurtful when you think of all the horrible things going on in the world that need power and don't seem to have it. Better not to think about it. I want to read that story and say to the Lord more than ever after reading it, Lord, let me take the risk. Send the fire. Send the fire of your Holy Spirit so that it's seen and known to be your gift. Be pleased to take our words and make them words of power to see hearts touched. Be pleased to take our actions and make them acts of power to see lives changed. Not that we may be raised up, not that we may be something, but that the other powers of this world may be laid low. That the world may know what is the gift of God. So let's set far from us, yes, all that Simon represents, but let's hold close to us in longing all that the Holy Spirit represents, to hold together in strong bonds. Think of it on this Remembrance Day, the Brits and the Germans, not by political schemes that can go wrong, but think of what we owe to the Germans, to the glory of a Reformation that was sparked off in German tongues, to Americans and Japanese together, to Jew and Gentile together, to Arab and African together. There is such power in the gift of God. Let's not run from it, but covet it, and for the best of reasons, so that Jesus Christ might be known in his world as Lord of all. And so let's pray. Lord, the best of us, at the best of times, still suffer from mixed motives. And there will be that little moat in our hearts that would really quite like it 
if we could show power. The power of God alive in our lives. But because we know that moat is there, we can run screaming from any of the reality, any of the longing, any of the hope for your power at work in our lives for the right reasons. And some of us tonight will need to focus on that moat, that little, little bit of the motive that is wrong. But many of us, I suspect, just need to come before you and say, Lord, we've forgotten. We've forgotten that your Holy Spirit is a fire to purify our lives a fire that will eventually burn up the world. And so we pray in this our generation and here and now and in this place that through us you would be pleased to send the fire of your spirit and change the world we meet as we go forth from here. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ the one who is presented to us and who in himself reveals God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.